Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. I'd like to begin with your uh, pronunciation. Uh, this is what month of the year? March. And uh, last month was uh, February. We are in a house, a farmhouse, in the dead center of Illinois. Uh, so many people pronounce that uh, February different from what I've always heard it pronounced. Uh, February. I don't know how they get that. They get a kind of a uh on that you. It's 1960. The man being questioned is a retired farmer. The man asking the questions is a linguist. He asks the farmer question after question about months, days, the weather, the rooms in the house, the furniture. And uh, this is uh, what? Davenport. What they call them nowadays. And what they used to call them. Well, uh, mostly they were a little different type of furniture. They called them a cot or... Uh, The minutes tick by. By the third hour, the line of questioning has moved on to farm animals. You have a little fun here now, if you like. Uh, I'd like you to hear you call the cows from pasture, if you would, for me. If you didn't catch that, the linguist is asking the farmer to show him how he calls the cows from pasture. Well, I don't know my voice will do it anymore, (laughs) not. It's uh, suka, suka. That's the way we used to call them. Animals all have more sense than most people give them credit to have. They learn those things, and you don't want to fool them very many times, or they won't answer you. Mm-hmm. But cows get so they don't have any bad habits, and here's the idea. You know, in breeding animals, it's just like raising kids. If people, parents, have a nasty temper, they can't blame their kids if they have one. Mm-hmm. I've listened to quite a few of these interviews. They're part of a survey that's been going on for nearly a century. And there's a moment in a lot of them that's just like this, usually quite a ways in, when it's like a switch is flipped. No more short answers. Instead, the person being interviewed just talks. And as you listen, you hear that person's life just opening up before you. How about pigs? Well, piggy, we are wooey, wooey, wooey. I don't know, you don't have to say that. That's just a common word. I could go out there and clap my hands good and loud, and if they come, feed them. The next time, they come from that clapping their hands, just the same. Horses, you can you can call horses, have a way of calling them. Mm-hmm. And uh, call them by name, loud enough so they can hear you. How would you make the horses go a little faster, what would you say? Oh, just get up, come on, something like that. It all depends on how you train a horse, you know, whatever you say. I'd call this one by name, his name was Roxy. I'd say, come on, Roxy, come on, I want you. Well, he'd start moseying along, you know. And I'd say, hurry up, I'm in a hurry. Come on, can't you come a little faster? From Quiet Juice and the Linguistic Society of America, this is Subtitle, stories about languages and the people who speak them. In this episode, the Linguistic Atlas Project, the story of how a group of researchers set about documenting the speech of ordinary Americans and how their definition of ordinary and their definition of Americans changed. In 
1929, an organization called the American Dialect Society decided to launch a survey of the dialects of American English. There were similar surveys underway in France and Italy and other countries, and the American linguists wanted to keep up with their European colleagues. They also had a nagging concern, which continues to this day, that dialects were vanishing, vanishing before they could be documented. Words and phrases, American-born words and phrases, they were flying out of the windows of these farmhouses and other places and evaporating without a trace. So the people who ran the American Dialect Society, they decided it was time to act. They wanted to collect the speech ways of the folk. The speech ways of the folk. The way ordinary Americans express themselves, from sea to shining sea. And so it was kind of both a labor of love to save something that might might be disappearing, but also a genuine academic inquiry into the English that was used in the United States to match the stuff that was being done in Europe. This is Alison Burkett. She's a professor of linguistics at the University of Kentucky and the current director of the Linguistic Atlas Project. The project began with interviews in New England. It gradually spread down the East Coast and then migrated inland. The researchers collected their material by going to people's homes. Most of the time, it was a matter of what we would now call a cold call. I mean, somebody driving up to somebody's farm and knocking on the door and explaining the project, explaining what they were interested in, and just hoping somebody would be willing to give that much of their time. And if you were one of those door-knocking researchers, you'd be requesting that people spend a lot of time with you. You're asking if you can spend six to eight hours talking to them, asking them questions. Wait, six to eight hours? Six to eight hours. And a lot of the people that they interviewed, especially the early ones, were older people. They, they, they erred on the side of, you know, talking to, I'm going to say, people over the age of 60 for these initial interviews. There was a, uh, what appeared to be a blackfish for your shop. They did have the phonograph recording device in the early 1930s, which is when the very first interviews were done, but they were not in any way what we would consider portable now. And what we've been able to figure out is there were probably two people doing the interviewing, one running the sound. It's like bringing a massive great studio into someone's home. Yeah, usually yeah, into someone's kitchen. I think a lot of the interviews took place, you know, in the back of the house in the less formal area of the kitchen. And I was going to make a rush in there if I couldn't find some meshes. The quality of the recordings, of course, got better over time. And the questions set by the dialecticians became more rigorous. This is from an interview in the early 1960s. And uh, the, the place, if you have, this is the first floor and then the second floor, and then you have a place up above. Attic. And uh, you never call that a garret. Well, I've heard the word, but we never used it. Okay. The questions largely fell into two categories, either to get people to give their pronunciation of a specific word or to get them to offer up a particular piece of vocabulary for something. And so, for instance, they could ask something like, what do you call the piece of furniture in your bedroom that has drawers where you keep socks and underwear? And uh, now, the thing that you, where you'd store your socks your underclothes and shirts, you might put them in the uh, dresser. The first term I ever heard for that, one my mother used, was bureau. Then we came, later on, we called it a chiffonier, chiffon robe, 
they're all the same. Bureau, chiffonier, chiffonier. Well, uh, chiffonier usually was a, a little taller. Um, I would call it a Chester Doors. That's what I grew up calling it. A lot of people said dresser, bureau, but they also said things like sideboard or high boy. And the more the Linguistic Atlas project spread geographically, the more the answers became varied. But even into the 1960s, the vast majority of people being interviewed, and for that matter, the interviewers, they were white males. Actually, a subcategory of white males, retired white men who lived on farms or in small towns. That was about to change. More after the break. Okay, if you've been listening this season, you'll know that we at Subtitle have a new newsletter. Every other week, if you subscribe, it's totally free, you'll find a fun and informative little missive in your inbox. We pick out our favorite language-related stories that are in the news, we have sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and we tell you about words from other languages that we really think ought to be in English. You know, words like schadenfreude. That was new to English once. Each edition of our newsletter is a five-minute read. Subscribe at our website, subtitlepod.com newsletter. That's subtitlepod.com newsletter. Okay, uh, today is Wednesday. Tuesday was... Yesterday. And Thursday is... Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You fix your hair, you comb it, and then you... This interview begins pretty much the same way as the earlier ones. But this isn't a farmhouse. It's Chicago. And as you can hear, it's a woman being interviewed, a black woman. This was in 1964, at the very start of an effort that the Linguistic Atlas Project only formally adopted a decade later, an effort to expand the demographic diversity of its interviewees, or informants as they called them. And that affected what they talked about in the interviews. The questions quickly move on from days of the week and personal grooming to cover startlingly new territory. Um, If uh, the mother was going to punish the child, she'd say, I'm going to whip you. If someone told you that you had to go and register to vote, you'd say, well, we know about that. In fact, we were going to do it. If someone was accusing, uh, trying to find out who had uh, committed uh, I can tell you what's going on there. This is Alison Burkett again, director of the Linguistic Atlas Project. She says the people behind the project back then added what they called an urban supplement to the original questionnaire. And they asked just these horrible questions. I found a copy. I mean, I don't know why they weren't all burned, but I found a copy of the Urban Supplement, and it's awful. It's direct questions about, you know, crime in your neighborhood, which seems very pointed towards minority informants. So they tried to do an Urban Supplement, I think, to balance out the fact that the people would not have the information about calls to cows and things like that, just to try and get you know, a longer interview with information to what apparently the field workers thought would be those people's day-to-day lives, which apparently was registering to vote and 
dealing with crime. So that interview in Chicago, despite the weird and awkward questions, it actually turned out okay. The woman had one of those moments that I was talking about before where she just launches into a monologue and there's no stopping her. I'm not going to play all of it, but here's an edited version. She's talking about where she grew up and lived before moving to Chicago. You know, I live in Hattiesburg, and uh, that's in Mississippi. And it's a very small town. Population, I think, is about 28,000 people. And uh, we lived down on the corner in a little house with red brick sidings on it. And it had two big old trees in the yard. But anyway, this place is a small town, and everybody knows everybody. And uh, they call it the hub of the South. These, most of the streets are not paved, you know, in the Negro section of town. Uh, in the white section, and uh, it's very beautiful and everything. They have azaleas and camellias and all sorts of flowers and things because it's warm, you see. And uh, most of the people there, they uh, raise what they eat, you know, because it's a small place. You can have your garden. And I really love the little place because I miss, you know, the good southern food, such as, you know, when you kill hog, you have smoked ham and you have smoked sausage and um, the green vegetables, tomatoes, okra, turnip greens, collard greens, and green onions and radishes and just everything. You know, southern people are very good cooks. And I miss my neighbors because they're so neighborly. Everybody know everybody. Then anybody could live in Mississippi because it's warm. You don't have to worry about the snow and the things like that. And in the April, everything is so beautiful. The flowers, the trees are all green and everything. And it's just, it's just wonderful. The people who ran the Linguistic Atlas Project did write things over the years. They updated their questionnaires, they trained the field workers, and they interviewed more people from cities, more women, more immigrants, more people whose first language isn't English. All that is represented in the reel-to-reel tapes, the cassettes, the digital recordings that Alison Burkett and her staff now look after, and occasionally add to, at the University of Kentucky. If the initial purpose was to collect the speechways of the folk, I think that what you would say about the purpose now is that the atlas is a collection of the variation that you find in language and languages spoken in the United States. And so it's about taking a look at that variation and figuring out what it means. I mean, are there regional differences? But at the same time now, it's, there's more interest in the social stuff. You know, how are people expressing their identities in terms of being from a particular place? How is that idea of place or home created by language during these interviews? Like we're interested in a lot more different kinds of stuff that you can still get from these same, inter- you can still get it from the old interviews. You can hunt some of that stuff down and you can hear people, you know, creating a sense of place in the way that they talk. And so in some ways it's very much the same, and in some ways I guess the the interests have broadened. The more recent interviews are of course better recorded, they're shorter, and they're altogether easier to manage, frankly to turn into a podcast episode. But to be honest, they're less interesting. Not just because the turns of phrases you hear are more familiar, less arresting, it's the other stuff. 
In the recordings from 60 or 70 years ago, the lives of those people, their worlds, they're so removed from ours. For one thing, those people are all dead. Some of the things they said are no longer said. But because of the technology, because we can hear them, because we can imagine them answering questions in their own homes, because they speak versions of English that, however strange sounding, are perfectly intelligible, because of all of that, it brings them closer to us. I gotta give huge thanks to Alison Burkett, who spent so much time helping me with this episode. Thanks to others too at the Linguistic Atlas Project, Lamont Antio, Chrysandra George, and Katia Davis. Also to the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences, and at the Library of Congress, Charles Hosale and Judith Gray. Special thanks to Grant Barrett of the American Dialect Society and host of the radio show and podcast, Away With Words. Grant put me onto this story a long time ago. I'm very grateful. Last but not least, I gotta say, even though they won't hear it, a big thanks to all other people who agreed to be interviewed for the Linguistic Atlas Project. Although they remain anonymous, their thoughts and words are recorded. And by the way, if you know of any words or phrases within your own family or your own hometown or neighborhood that you've wondered where they come from, let us know. We'll ask the people at the Linguistic Atlas Project if they've come across those words. Send us an email, subtitlepod at gmail.com. That's subtitlepod at gmail.com. Tina Toby is our sound designer. Alison Shaw manages our newsletter and social media. Please rate and review Subtitle wherever you listen. It's great to get feedback, and those ratings and reviews really help others find us. And you can also help others find us by telling your friends about us. Tell your enemies, too. Maybe you'll all become Subtitle frenemies. One last thing, Subtitle is a member of the Hub and Spoke Podcast Collective. We're a bunch of podcasters who are all dedicated to telling stories about stuff that you're not going to come across most anywhere else. Here's one of the other Hub and Spoke podcasts, The Briny, which tells stories about the sea, our love for it, our fear for it, and many other things too. Listen to the episode about a woman who tries to overcome her anxiety about shark attacks by competing in an ocean swim. Find out more about The Briny and all of the Hub and Spoke podcasts at hubspokeaudio.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Subtitle is made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.